not to forgive me for using the same colic to open every time, but it's one of my favorite colics from the liturgy. And really, it's a colic said by the priest that you don't even get to hear. So I find it very, very, very much a summation of what the Christian life is all about. Let us pray. O oh God, who didst lay the foundation of man's being in wonder and honor, and in greater wonder and honor didst renew the same. Grant that by thy holy incarnation, that he who is partaker of our humanity may make us joint heirs of his very Godhead, even Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who with the Father and the Holy Ghost liveth and reigneth ever one God, world without end. Amen. Well, I have a, I have a disclaimer to mention. I'll start by telling a very brief, one of my favorite stories from the monastics. There's a story of a monk who spent all of his time in repentance. He learned, he really learned what repentance was all about. One day a demon showed up during this monk's prayer time, and the demon said, you are the worst of sinners, and I am taking you with me. And the monk's response was, yes, indeed, I am the worst. And at that point, the monk, the, the demon left him uh, because as Father Zacharias and St. Sophroni point out to us, the one place, and this is sort of related to the sermon today, the one place the devil cannot, will not go is down into humility. He's a character of pride. And so the safest place for us from any demonic influence is in the virtue of humility. So if we go downward with Christ, uh, we are the safest. And our fallen nature tells us that reality is exactly the opposite. So that the more we are glorified, the safer we will be. And so we're always constantly trying to reach some form of self-glorification. And it only gets worse. We only become more and more vulnerable. Well, <clears throat> having said that, I have to do some self-abasement here, which is very hard, as you know. Uh, that is, the last time I thought I made a mistake and my son pointed it out. It's worse when your family points it out. Most, of, most especially, I assure you, as a priest, when the wife points it out. <laughs> Uh, so in any case, I, I, I was talking about the qualities and the attributes of God, characteristics of God's essence. And I didn't, and I didn't give you notes, and I'm glad I didn't, because you would have seen this probably. But as it passed in the conversation, you probably never even noticed. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But he did. And afterwards, when he pointed it out, I thought, I did too, and I can't believe I didn't see it in my notes. But in any case, I was talking about God's, God being all-knowing and being all-powerful. And I said he was omniscient, and I defined it as all-powerful. That's wrong. Omniscient is all-knowing. Omnipotent is all. We all know that word. So, but you were very kind and gentle. You did not tell me. See if I get you to teach again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm reminded of Jeff Jeb Clampett. You know, pitiful, pitiful. <laughs> I like Jeb Clampett, by the way. He's a wonderful man. All right, let's shift gears. <laughs> There's a Bishop Basil said something once. It's in this book by Father Zacharias, but they're the words of Bishop Basil. And Father Zacharias had told us in this, I was present when all the lectures in this book were, were given. And he told us a story, and I can't remember what the story was, but he mentioned four saints in the story. And afterwards, Bishop Basil got up and pointed something out, which I think summarizes really the, the soul of what we're doing in these classes. And I'll explain it in a minute. He said, remember, this is Bishop Basil speaking. 
Father Zacharias very calmly spoke in one sentence, one sentence in which he mentioned four saints, Elder Sophroni, now Saint Sophroni, uh, asking another saint, Saint Nikolai Velimirovich, what he thought about his own book about another saint, Silouan, in which he quoted another saint, Justin Popovich, all sons of the 20th century, commenting on Saint Silouan. You know how the church's understanding of tradition comes from the Greek word parodosis, a passing on. One person passing on something unchanged, something very valuable and precious and important, utterly important from one generation to the next. And we have just received something precious. We are participating in tradition in a very existential way. That sums up what holy tradition is. I used to think tradition was doing it the way we've always done it. It isn't, it's a living thing. Uh, and was passed on in this particular instance from one saint to another and on to the church. <clears throat> and, and what we're doing here is not Father Mark's idea or my idea. That's the wonder of orthodoxy is we get to pass on what the church says and has its own riches and its own life and its own inherent wealth. And it's we're irrelevant other than in it, how much we are, allow ourselves or allow God to teach us and instruct us so that we can pass on the instruction correctly. Uh, another reason to pray for your clergy, the old saying, if you don't pray for your priests, you get what you deserve. <laughs> you, hey, hey, I, I'm going to say something in a minute. You're closer to reality than you know. <laughs> 40 times, that's right. Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. Lord. Anyway, I'm going to sort of backtrack for a minute. I'm going to have to be up and down because of my back. But um, we started out by talking about the immaterial and the material, that when God creates, and we speak in Genesis of the creation of the heaven and the earth, that the heavens speak of the immaterial realm. And so that reality is both a material realm that we're used to uh, and an immaterial realm and, uh, <clears throat> that, that exists even though we don't participate necessarily in it. Uh, the immaterial realm is not discussed in Genesis 1 or 2, the two creation stories, but the immaterial realm is implied. The material realm would be the cosmos. The immaterial would be basically the presence of God. And so when God creates, then immediately it's when creation comes into being, it's in relationship to this one, this creator, this being God. And we can say it, we can speak of that in terms of a place, the where of the presence of God. But remember, if we talk, as we talked about the very nature of God, his essence, <laughs> it's so far transcendent that this where is something that we can't really fathom because we're, we're limited to this material creation. We think of this and that table and those chairs and this floor and this building as just something substantive. And so the where of a relationship with God has got to be limited to something like that. No, it is something which transcends that. You remember when I talked last time about what Sergei Bulgakov says about wisdom. Wisdom is both God's revealing himself in our innate, because he made us this way, ability to understand what he reveals. And the two together create something substantive, a manifestation, an incarnation, if you will, in reality of the wisdom of God. That is wisdom. That is all knowledge. So in any case, there's an immaterial, which is the presence of God and the angelic hosts which are purely spiritual beings. And by the way, let me just, let's get something straight. Human beings do not become angels at their death. If you haven't gotten that straight, it's time to work on it. 
I just saw, I was looking for some information on someone in obituaries in the internet yesterday. And one of them opened up said, John got his wings today. Uh, I'm sorry, the angels are a different part of the created order than human beings are. We, are, we don't become angels. We become like angels in the, in the spiritual capacity, but that's another story. But we do not become angels. Let's not get that confused. We are two different parts of creation. One is immaterial and the other participates in both, which I'll mention in a minute. So we created reality, reality is both the immaterial and the material. We need to understand that. When we come here, there's a whole realm. We're stepping into an entire realm which transcends that space and that building. We're stepping into it. I was overwhelmed today by the sense in which we're being drawn, almost like a tractor beam in Star Wars, you know. You can see I'm into science fiction. That ought to give you a clue. Beware. Uh, so we're being drawn, old science fiction, by the way, the old stuff, not the modern stuff. I don't watch the newbies, I watch the old ones. Anyway, we're being drawn into something which takes us past the limits of what we see into the, into the eternity that's being opened to us. So created reality, reality is both. And this experience is called paradise. What we come to understand is paradise, the Garden of Eden is not a place over in the Middle East somewhere, but it's all of creation when it's created and open to God and God is manifest in all of it. Not just one place or another, but in all of it. So when we talk about the material and the immaterial, when you think of the immaterial, think of that and think of the two together. So the place of paradise really was all of creation. And the place of paradise might be said to be, as I've already mentioned, the place of God experienced, the place, place. Put it in quotes, don't think of it in terms of earthly concepts. The place experienced in each individual's heart, that awesomeness can be experienced and manifest in the hearts of each one of us. Not the hearts, not the desire, the ability to receive that information and to respond to it is what heart is. Uh, and so it's there and it can be experienced by all of us. That's a place. So St. Paul calls us the temples of the Holy Spirit. That is the place. Each, each individual here in this room has the ability to receive and manifest the presence of the divine being who created this universe and whose characteristics, whose essence we talked about the last time. Each one of us. You know, we like to think of the saints. It's the saints and I'm just Joe Ordinary. <laughs> Guess what? Most of them would probably tell you that they're just Joe Ordinary. Uh, and, that, and we can look at their stories, and they started out as ordinary stories. And they became saints because they understood what I'm saying, and they grasped it. It's a part of the tradition, and it gave them life. And that life transformed them. And we want to be a part of that. And so you have the place of God experienced in the place of God in man's heart. Tell me that's not my phone. <laughs> I guess not. Good. Anybody else's but mine. I have this fear by this, a priestly fear. Uh, and it is my phone will start ringing in the middle of the consecration while I'm up at the altar. I just, <laughs> just really fear that. Uh, so, so if I'm ever celebrating here and that happens, I want to hear a chorus of pitiful. pitiful. <laughs> You have my permission and blessing. You never know what hour the Lord might call. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. 
see, when you let people like me be in charge, this is what happens. Everything degenerates. And we're not going down to humility here. We're just going down into the absurd. Should we chant that pitiful? Yes. Yeah. If you can put it to Gregorian chant, it'll be even better. Yes. I'm sure now that I've said that, Kevin will come up with a, a mantra for it. In any case, there's also, once we begin this journey, the particular places on earth where God's presence is manifested. The temple in Jerusalem in the ancient world in the Old Testament. The holy sites, shrines, tombs of martyrs and saints. I was just reading a story the other day. Uh, and this was a book that had nothing to do with this subject matter. But an individual was talking about being in a town in Ireland where there was a well-devoted, well-dedicated St. Bridget of Ireland. St. Bridget is the patroness of the Irish people. And there are wells all over Ireland, uh, some of which she blessed her and they sprang out of the earth and others which were there and she gave her blessing to them. Uh, so you find these wells all over the place if you travel Ireland. Well, there was, there was one town where the Catholic priest didn't even bother to bless holy water. He just went down to the well because his argument was that St. Bridget had already blessed it. So all he had to do was just reach down there and grab some, put it in a bucket and take it back to the church. So. There are sites, there are places, and you may want to laugh at that, but on the other hand, if, if, if we had a, a shrine right out there in a well devoted to St. Bridget, you'd probably do the same thing, because you understand something about holy sites and holy places. Go to any, we went, when we went to Ireland, we went to the, the monastery of St. Kevin of Glendalough. And, and there's a church there, there are two churches there on the grounds, and they're really post his life. They were built afterwards, but they're at least a thousand years old and they're in ruins. And we went into this one, it was a stone wall, it's a stone wall, so it's all that's left, the ceiling is gone and no ornamentation. And as we walked in, I stood at the back, remember what I told you about, go into the church and stand at the back and look forward, and then go up to the front and turn around and look back. Because that's the way God sees it, it's the difference between our view and his, we want to see both. So I walked into church, I stood at the back and, and watched, and then went to the front and stood where the, probably where the altar was and turned around and looked back and looked at the, at the nave and imagined I could feel all the people who had been there praying. You could feel it, you could sense it. Uh, then we went into the other chapel and there in the area where the, where the altar had been, against the wall was a square stone with four crosses carved in the corners. <clears throat> The earliest altars in the church were square like they are in the Eastern Rite. And there's a reason for that too, but that's another story. Uh, and here the stone was there leaning against the wall with four crosses in the corners, which the early church, at least church in the early Middle Ages used to do. They would carve, when they would blessed an altar, they would carve, uh, carve in the stone tops, the mensons, crosses. So I knew that was an altar top. Someone, people had said mass on that altar before. Of course, people are wandering in. They don't know what that thing is over there. They don't have a clue. Wow, missing out on something. It's a piece of, a piece of the picture that's given to us. It is this place. God has revealed himself there. He's revealed himself right here in the midst of all of this creation. This is a piece of paradise. And I'm not saying that metaphorically. It really is. So the place of paradise is all of those. So when you think of paradise, I want you to think of all of those. And our, ourselves is a part of it. Uh, it's really, and then always remember that whatever we say, whatever we conclude, the reality of it is, it's even greater than that. Always. Awesome. 
just awesome. Can't get enough of it. <clears throat> Literally, can't get enough of it. Okay, so man in the beginning. So creation in the beginning was paradise. And man had a special place in this creation. Now, I've mentioned to you, there are two creation stories, Genesis 1 and 2. There are two different stories written in two different time periods, uh, presenting this whole story in two different ways. Some people have said, well, you can't pay any attention to them because they contradict one another. Well, no, they don't. They complement one another in different ways. Uh, and it's important for us to see them because of what they're trying to tell us, not because they're some kind of a scientific document. And Genesis 1, basically, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 4, so the first four verses of chapter 2, tells us this, that man is the culmination of the created order. So God creates. The focus in that first chapter is on God creating. God creates, and for us, in the beginning, humanity is the culmination of the created order. So you have all these other things listed, and then you have man at the end, the culmination. If you do a procession, the place of honor is always at the end. Most of the time, but not always. So you put the person who's in most honored at the end. The bishop would be the last one in the procession in the church. It says in Genesis 1 that humanity is blessed by God. Blessed. <clears throat> I was struck by the dismissal, for example. Uh, depart. The Lord be, not the, the salutation, the Lord be with you. Comes out of Luke, I mean, uh, Ruth 2.4. The old Jewish practice of the Lord bless you, or the Lord be with you, the Lord bless you, is the response. The Lord bless. It's almost like humanity taking the place of God and blessing. And the Lord be with you, mean, it implies that. The Lord be with you. He fills us. He's calling for that. He's begging for that. And so... So humanity was blessed by God. The rest of creation is not blessed by God. We were. Humanity was. And given a responsibility, have dominion. Doesn't mean abuse it and take advantage of it, dig it all up and tear it all up. It has, it has a place in which we are responsible for it. It's called stewardship. That's another aspect of our responsibilities. Uh, humanity had responsibility. Dominion over creation. It might be said that this is even a commandment. In addition, humanity was told, besides have dominion, be fruitful and multiply. Now, everybody's got it in their minds that this means have children. And indeed, in Judaism, this is considered the first of the 613 commandments, the first positive statement. And a commandment in the Bible, this, we think of commandments as thou shalt, thou shalt not. In, in, in the people, among the people of the, of, the ancient, of the Old Testament, even the New Testament period, a commandment was any positive statement or any negative statement. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is a commandment, not a statement. It's a commandment because it's a positive statement. I've actually gone through the Gospels and pulled out all of Jesus' positive statements, things that we wouldn't think were commandments, but really are. <clears throat> So in any case, be fruitful and multiply, which really means be fruitful. Bear me. Bear me and multiply. I'll come back to that in a minute, what that means. And have dominion. Wow, what a place of responsibility we have. Uh, and then he creates, let us create man in our image. In our image, in our likeness, let us create him then. Create them. <clears throat> 
image and likeness. Image is that which is like God, that which is inherent in each of us, which is like God. God makes us that way so that we are mirror images, or we're supposed to be, of him. That's what we're supposed to be. And so some aspects of this image are these. Participating in eternity. We don't feel like we participate in eternity. <laughs> we're comfortable with time, chronology, uh, the material, the limitations of the material room. Perfect. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Be perfect. We're far from perfect. What's our favorite saying? I'm only human. Well, guess what? That doesn't work because the perfect human is Christ and Christians, humans are to be perfect. Adam was perfect in the beginning. Comprehending the immaterial, aware of both. We, we mentioned a quote from, the, uh, or you, you referred to the, song, the story of the three young men. And I was struck because if you look at their song, the fullness of their song, which is found in the Septuagint in the Latin translations, in the Greek translations, it's not in the Hebrew, it's left out. It really is a song of creation. So it's brought, it brings the whole scenario back to the created order and what God intended. And in the Western Rite tradition, this is used frequently to bring that point forward in the liturgical tradition, which I hope to talk about sometime in the future. So image. <clears throat> so comprehending the immaterial, rational. We're going to talk about the ability to understand and to understand objectively. See, we don't go into this and understand emotionally. We can do that too, but we understand objectively. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. That's an objective truth that you and I have to accept in order to begin this journey. That may make us mad and, well, what about all the other people that never heard of him? What about, what about, what about? As Peter Crave likes to say, American Christians like to find an exception to the rule and make it a rule to make exceptions. <laughs> See, we can all laugh because we know how true it is. That is an objective truth that we have to deal with, rationally and objectively, not emotionally. You know, I feel for all the people in the world, and, and, and so what we're talking about, we have, that's a part of what we're expected to do, is to care for the people of the world, for all, because all are in the image and likeness of God. And it's a sickness that we all share, and we know all too well what that sickness is. So we should have compassion. This is still the objective truth and where we must go. We have nothing to offer the world unless we hold this truth and believe in it and allow it to multiply and be fruitful in our individual lives. So image and, and so rational experiencing God, we've already discussed that, and dispassionate, that is not subject to basic urges. That's why we have fasting in Lent, and as you'll see, Fasting was a feature of man before the fall in paradise. Mm, no wonder the monks say that fasting is a practice of paradise. And male-female. The humanity is the, is the ant antinomy of male-female. That's what we are. So it's not an accident. Our gender is not an accident. It's not a mental construct. It is an inherent ontological aspect of who each of us is. 
And it's a part of a whole picture which looks like this when it's held up correctly. And when one side is emphasized at the expense of the other, yeah, I got someone hanging off the cross like this. Looks more like the way Jehovah's Witnesses portray the cross. Genesis 2, from 2.5 to the end of the chapter. Man is formed first, before all the other carbon life forms. So in a different order of honor. And the Spirit of God is breathed into him. Instead of being blessed, is breathed into him, it says. Same thing, really. He breathes into him the Spirit of life. And puts him in paradise. Puts him in this place of perfect relationship. And fullness of relationship. Oh, wait a minute. To step back to image and likeness. Likeness is doing all those things in image eternally. And they never end. Image and likeness. Likeness does not mean imperfection. It means perfect growing into perfection. Wow. Of course, we're starting from an imperfect situation because of our sins, so we have some time to make up. But that's another story. So Genesis 2, God breathes into it. He puts him in paradise, to tend paradise, it says, to tend creation. He gives him commandments, tend paradise, and don't, a negative commandment, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, first humans were like little kids. You know, you say they're fine until you say don't do something. And then suddenly they're curious beyond control. And they wind up doing the very, there's a psychology to parenting, as most of you probably have learned the hard way, I'm sure. <laughs> so they're given commandments, don't eat the tree of knowledge. So in other words, abstain from this particular thing. So abstinence is a part of the condition before the fall. Very interesting. We think of fasting as something imposed by this mean, nasty church that's trying to make us to have fun in life. So we don't pay any attention when it comes time to Lent, to fast and abstain. And yet it's a, produ it's a producing of one of the fruits of paradise. It is to participate in the activities of paradise. That's what Lent is. And did you know that the creation stories mark the beginning of pre-Lent in the Western Rite lectionary? It's trying, they're trying to tell us that. And we miss it. So while that, he allows... In the second creation story, God allows man to name the animals. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you a story from us. We have two Siberian Huskies, Dimitri and Katiana. This is an aside, but Russian dogs, Siberia comes from Russia. Russian dogs should have Russian names. Basically. Anyway, that's, that's our logic. Uh, you can do what you want with Anyway, if you have dogs, and maybe this is true of cats, I can't say this one of dogs. If we don't, when we name the dogs, we give to them a certain self-awareness that they don't have as animals. I mean, we, we like to put a lot of grated cheese on food. And the dogs like the grated cheese. So when the grated cheese comes out, they hear the bags and they come running. And they sit like this, right down there. So we have the cabinet here, you know, and the cheese is here. They're sitting like this. And they expect a, a few pieces back and forth. But they know enough now by hearing their names that if I say Katiana, Dimitri does not move and Katiana's ready to receive her cheese and vice versa. And that is giving those dogs a sense of self-awareness that they didn't have before. Now, it's not self-awareness like you and I had. It doesn't, it's not the same. It's a different kind of self-awareness. But we gave them that. 
by giving them names. So we were in one sense co-creators with God of a certain quality in these dogs. And that's an example of what can happen in all of creation. And from the beginning, God made man to be a co-creator with him, to be his agent. Think of ourselves as co-creators. We're not glorifying man beyond his ability. We're simply saying what we were given from the beginning. Also, the story speaks of the antinomy of male and female. Again, just like the first story. And man in the, cre in the second creation story, by implication, walks and talks with God. A very personal thing, very intimate thing. <clears throat> very, very intimate. <clears throat> and they're telling us we can have that. Well, I'm dropping stuff all over. I guess it doesn't matter. So let's sort of summarize these. Man in the beginning was dispassionate, not subject to his basic urges. He was rational, understanding and experiencing, and that could be unlimited. He had one desire, the longing only for God. Free will. Free will means that one can choose to do something or not to do something. Uh, and we never, in spite of what's been taught in many Christian bodies today, we have never lost our, absolutely lost our freedom of will. It's been damaged severely, and the habits of sin have obstructed it even more. But we haven't lost it. The very fact that a human being could cry out to God and say, help me, which no one would deny, suggests that the corruption is not absolute. So we can, we still have some free will left. Enough so that we can begin to work with God, just like Adam did. Adam had absolute free will. And he was pure potential, not imperfect, growing into something perfect, but perfection growing into eternity. He was integrated. That is, every aspect of his life was a part of this. There were no separations. We didn't you know, go to church on Sunday and then spend the rest of the week living like pagans, indulging our passions and ignoring God. He was integrated. Prayer was natural for Adam, for man in the beginning. Prayer is not natural for us anymore. That should tell us that something's wrong. I mean, how many of you have not struggled in learning prayer? Do you know that the two words in the church, in the history of the church, that are used to define prayer are officium in Latin and liturgies in Greek, office, liturgy. So the divine offices and the liturgy of the mass, basically. Both of those words derive from terms which have to do with work, because prayer is work. It really is. And when you think you've got it down, then you have to work on one aspect of prayer, and that is staying consistent with it. That's the hard part. So prayer was natural for man in the beginning. Time was antinomical, not just chronological as we know it, but also eternal. Time is both. So we have something to learn about time. I, I was thinking about so caught up in, in the liturgy in, in, in the movement from outside in and the drawing of the words of the prayers, drawing us up toward the altar, even though we didn't step up to the altar. Uh, we were being drawn up to it. Uh, that I thought it's easy if one focuses on these things to lose track of the fact of how long it takes to do the service. I mean, even if we do the mass quickly, 
it's going to take an hour. And there are a lot of churches out there, Christian people who want it to be over as soon as possible. Drive through sacraments. Back in the 80s down here in a certain mid-city, it was actually drive through Sunday sermons. So you didn't have to get out of your car. Simply pull in the back and they had like a drive-in theater arrangement and you hooked up and there was a bay window at the back of the parish hall or something and the guy <clears throat> gave his sermon in a nutshell and they sang a hymn and went home. We want to go into time in its real essence. It was going to be, we should not ask the question, how long when we're here? We should be lost in this. And if we're tied up in the time, we're missing something. And believe me, nobody's judging. I'm just as impatient as you are. My family members can tell you I take the cake. I am the worst of all to mention that monk. So I'm not going to say anything, but I'm just telling you how it is. We have to, we have to know what's expected of us to be able to do something about it. Time in, in the beginning was both eternal and chronological. We have to capture or recapture the eternal aspect. We talked about participation in the immaterial realm, the, the, the angelic, and there are so many other aspects of the immaterial realm. Let me give you two brief stories. One time at St. Benedict's, we were doing, it was Holy Week, and we were doing Tenebrae, and we did. But for those of you, it's Tenebrae has done the last three days of Holy Week. And we did them in the morning, dark, early in the morning. And on one of the days, uh, there were only six of us there, three people serving the altar and three people who came. And the three people who came to see the service sat up near the front of the church, so they'd be close to the action. And so we're singing along. We sang the entire thing. And we're singing along. And all of a sudden, I'm in the chancel, so I'm sideways, facing across at the, the reader across from me. And here are these people right next to me, probably no farther away than, than y'all are from where I was. And all of a sudden, way in the back, I heard someone singing. And using my peripheral vision, picks that up. And I would have seen somebody come in. I didn't see anybody come in. Uh, and I had this thing about looking around during the service. So I was trying not to look, but the voice was really loud. And I finally couldn't resist it. And I turned and looked, and there was nobody. And right about the time I turned and looked, one of the people in the front row also heard it and turned and looked. After service, she said, who was that that came in in the back? I said, there wasn't anybody there. So we had some company for a while. I told this story to Bishop Basil, and he promptly told me of a story very similar to that, where he heard a whole choir singing at the cathedral, and there was nobody there. Another time, we were at the altar in, in our parish at St. Benedict's. We used Ethiopian frankincense for the incense. No others. One aroma. And, and when you use the aroma like that, it, it permeates the building. And after a while, you can smell it in the building. You just walk in, God, you almost, if I were smart enough to remember the details, I'd be able to tell you what incense they use. So you could do that if they don't change it out. So we had the aroma of frankincense, Ethiopian frankincense there in the building. And we were in the middle of the consecration saying the prayers, and all of a sudden we were overwhelmed with this scent, this aroma that was different than Ethiopian frankincense. There was no logical reason why it should have happened. And I thought, well, maybe it's me. So I turned to my deacon. I said, do you smell that? And he said, yes. Uh, and the two of us just standing there just sort of shocked. And it lingered for a few, maybe 30 seconds, a couple of minutes, and then it disappeared. Participation in the immaterial reality. Adam had that all the time. 
<clears throat> this is where we want to go. I mentioned fasting being a part of his life. Adam was commanded to fast, to abstain. He was unique, as we've already seen and been able to determine in creation. That's why in the second century, St. Irenaeus, and again, St. Athanasius in the fourth century could say, God became man that man might become God. Not to supplant God or be equal to God, but to participate in his divine life. They understood that right from the beginning in the church. And that's unique. The rest of creation doesn't take that place. The animals look to us to take that rightful place. <clears throat> also, as Father Zacharias says, that God wants to impart holiness to us so that when he looks at us, he may see himself as in a mirror. How do you measure up to that? Wow. And yet, it's not unreasonable. It is possible. You're talking about image and just, that's what we should see. I have a former parishioner as a police officer, and once he began to learn this about orthodoxy, image, and likeness, whenever he'd get entangled with a, with a person who was breaking the law, he used to go through a mantra that he had an image of God, image of God, and he'd keep repeating it so that he'd, he'd treat the person with respect and not lose control, which you know, was a temptation. Universality. Each individual, then, who can manifest God in the fullness also represents God to all of creation and all of creation to God. When we, when we stand in there, each one of us represents all of creation, all the creators. It doesn't matter if the other people didn't come, if they don't get it, they don't understand. We still stand in representation of them before God, all of us. It's not just the priest. He's one among many, and he has a special place. But we're all here to represent God before all of creation, before God, and God to all of creation. That's called universality, not universalism. Universality. Every one of us is meant to be like that. That's why in the Eastern Rite they have that line, on behalf of all and for all. <laughs> That's why. And I like that Western Light pri private devotion prayer that says, on behalf of those who have said no prayers today, let us say. See, that's what we do. So when we say our prayers, we're saying them on behalf of all others. When we do our spiritual work, we're doing it on behalf of all of creation, not just on behalf of ourselves. He was humility manifested. There was no sinful pride in man in the beginning. I think that's what it said. They, they were naked and did not know. Because only self-absorption would make one know. Especially if one's been brought up and inundated in that self-absorption. None of us would dare walk around without clothes on today. So, and that may be just imagery used to get a point across, we don't know. But in any case, humility was manifest. There was no sinful pride. Death was not part of the picture. You know, we're moving along toward a termination, a stopping point. Uh, and we see our lives within stopping point. And I can guarantee you, for you younger people, that the farther you get along the spectrum, uh, the shorter this picture looks. <clears throat> but if you put us on the chronology of eternity, we're specks. If you put us on the chronology of chronological time, we are specks. So death was not a part of this picture. So that whole dimension, an end of it, didn't happen. <clears throat> 
in everything. Self was seen in relationship to God, understood in relationship to God. This was why, having said those things, Psalm 8 is used as a psalm of humanity in creation. That's what tradition tells us. It is the hymn, supposedly, of the angels at the creation of man. And I'm only using part of it here. I left the first couple lines out. When I look at the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and stars, which thou hast established, by the way, uh, the angelic host, some sources in the ancient world, uh, ancient Judeo-Christian world, believed that the angels were in charge of all the elements of creation. So it could be that what's being said here in the moon and the stars is also referring to the angels of creation. When I look at thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast established, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou, dost, thou hast made him little less than God, and did crown him with glory and honor. Thou hast given him dominion over the works of thy hands, thou hast put all things under his feet. A psalm of creation of us. Isn't that amazing? So, let's sum this up. What Adam's life, existence was like is much different from what we experience. Why is that? Well, it's something called the fall, which affected both the immaterial and the material creation. It affects all of creation, all of it, all the way down to its final forms. All that created order awaits for the glorification of the sons of God, that is, us, for us to do our part. For us to respond to God the way we should, to enter into the process of being who he made us to be and cooperating with what he has done to bring that about. Sin, then, the fall, separates creation from God, creation from angels, creation from man, man from self. You know, here we are separated. Sin separates us from, from God, and then we live our lives separated from God, and we come to death, and soul and body are rent asunder. And the body dies and the soul is left. We're constantly disintegrating. <clears throat> this is what's happening to the crown of glory, the crown of creation, the church calls us. The crown of creation is disintegrating. Something has happened. This is not normal. We say, well, I'm only human. Wrong. That is not human. It is abnormal. And all of us come into church, and we, we should come here and bring that knowledge with us and come here for the express purpose of being healed. I love it that the, in the Orthodox Church, for many of the theologians, most of them, I think, they use the language of medicine, of healing. Uh, remember, first, it, for those of you who might have had to take the St. Stephen's course and you had to read, uh, Herathius Vlacos book, Orthodox Psychotherapy. I was a young priest, and I thought, oh, this is about how to counsel people. See, that's sort of this worldly thing. And I read the book, and it was all about getting the soul right with God. Uh, it was about a healing on a different plane. Uh, and at first, I didn't like the book because it disappointed me. But then I began to see that's a pearl of wisdom from the Orthodox Church, that God wants to heal us so that we can be what he meant for us to be. We talked about, we, we saw an example of praying over someone for healing at the end of the service. We think of miracles as being abnormalities which intrude on the created order. But in fact, miracles are normative and should be happening all the time. What 
not seeing them is the abnormality, the def defect, if you will. So something different has come into being and we're participating in it, which we think is normal, but in fact is not. So the next time that I'm up, I want to talk about the fall of creation and discuss what happened and why. Because it tells us something about our own work, just like all of this does. It sort of identifies what we have to do and why we're here. <clears throat> Questions? Yes, Em? You're supported, right? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. like, feel like, wait. Yeah, I can't write that down. Yeah. <laughs> you can Making do, sure. You can do questions. Thank you. I'm so glad. Enjoyed it. Yes, I'd like to repeat what you said about the three in the furnace. I kind of missed that. About the what? About the three men in the furnace. And of course, Christ's presence there. You, you mentioned something like, you said, understand objectively. Um, and I didn't quite grasp what you were saying. Well, I just re listen. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, maybe, but there, in the story of the three young men in, in the Hebrew text in the Old Testament, they're, they're thrown into the fire and it says they walked about and they sang, and it pretty much ends there with then they were seen with the fourth person uh, and they're brought out of the fire unharmed. But in the, in the Greek Old Testament and also in the Latin Old Testament, which replicates it, uh, which was used by Jews of the early centuries in the diaspora, so outside of Palestine. It has an entire hymn that they sang, the words supposedly that they sang. And that really is a hymn about creation. Believe there are parts of it that don't look like it, but there are parts you can see, and it's, it's I can't remember what the chapter is, but it's in the book of Daniel. Uh, and it's one of the many texts that are used that are creation-related, that are used by the church liturgically to remind us about keeping perspective and being keeping it, everything in this order, this creation-related order, because otherwise we succumb to the fallen nature and the fallen state in its effectiveness. And we already know what that is. Yes. Did you have your hand up? Yeah. No, but that was you. Okay. You must have knew that I wanted to say. Oh, 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 no, no. You know, it's. Father Zachary, look, Father Zacharias is so wonderful, but um, he said that he said to Saint Sophroni, somebody went to tell him something nice, and Father Sophroni said said his prayer was, "Lord, help me, my assassins have come." <laughs> so you, you can sometimes it behooves us not to tell somebody they did a good job because anyway. The real bearing out of all of that is when we get transformed. When I look over at you and see you enwrapped in the liturgy, then I know I've done my work. <laughs> anyway, thank you. <clears throat>